Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, our custom is to work our way through the text of Scripture verse by verse, expositional uh, teaching. And so we're going to cover verses 1 through 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Have you ever felt, have you ever found yourself in a scenario where you realize you were completely ill-equipped? It was something maybe that came across your radar, something you were called to do, and you realize you just, you weren't prepared for it at all. You were not ready. Now, maybe this is something small, like maybe it's a, it's a repair in your home. Something has broken, and, and you realize, I don't really know where to go with this. Maybe it was something much more significant. Uh, you were asked to mediate between two parties who couldn't get along, and you were asked to bring about reconciliation. You realize there are so many things that I'm just not really prepared for. I'm, I'm ill-equipped to do. Certainly, if you're a parent, you know this feeling well of being ill-equipped. Uh, when that you came home from the hospital with your first child, and, and, and you look at him, and you, you look at her, and you realize, I don't know what to do with this one. I don't know what to do right now. She won't stop crying. He won't eat. She won't sleep. He won't stop. In our case, it was he won't stop drooling. Our son, I, I have a picture. I couldn't find it of, of our oldest just sitting there with a, a little gray Gap t-shirt on and just a ring of drool all the way down his stomach. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I'm looking around. How do you shut this off? Where, where's the faucet on this kid? What do you do with this person? I really had no idea what to do. Now, of course, it's beyond just parenting. We notice things that we're ill-equipped to do. We've been looking at 1 Timothy for the past, I don't know, 10 or 11 weeks, and, and we've seen that, that 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul somewhere in the latter half of the first century, and it's written to Timothy, who was Paul's apprentice, Paul's protege in the faith, and Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to lead and care for and serve this church, and Timothy realizes right away he's not really very well prepared for this. In fact, Timothy was known as, as a, a bit, at least in the, in the inner circle, as a person who was more faint-hearted, perhaps. He was not the sort of guy who would march into a room and take charge. And the problems he encountered in this church, they just kept mounting. The problems seemed to be endless. Some of the leaders in the church were teaching false doctrine. Uh, some of the elderly folks in the church were apparently looking down on Timothy because of his young age. There were pockets in the church that were getting sidetracked by these endless discussions on myths and genealogies and things that really didn't matter, and yet they were distracting the church from her mission. There were women who were talking over the men as they were teaching and as the church gathered together, serving as a distraction. And to top it all off, good things, some good things were actually becoming the main thing, and gospel and mission were being pushed to the side. Churches, as you know, like people, can get sidetracked. They can easily become caught up in secondary or tertiary issues, and they can lose their focus. Arguments over ministries or worship styles or decisions about buildings, staff, whatever it is, those things can become distractions that then dissuade her church, the church from being effective on her mission. Well, one of the things that the church at Ephesus had become distracted by was something that no one would have expected, really, and that was, how are the widows going to be cared for? First Timothy chapter 5, and let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. The text reads like this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, 
younger women as sisters in all purity. Sadly, one of the marks of our culture in North America is that, and it's not the case, by the way, for many other parts of the world, is that older folks are becoming increasingly neglected and marginalized. Uh, Americans, as you know, place a tremendous value on youth and vitality and external uh, beauty and physical strength and the ability to make lots of money. And, and so what happens is as folks get older, then they, become, they, they are regarded by many as irrelevant. They don't have the same physical strength. They don't have some of those same abilities. And there's a vicious cycle really that happens. And I was reading about that this week in the World Health Organization that says that what happens is older people begin to feel that they're a burden to other people. And so they, they see their lives as less valuable, which then increases their risk of isolation and depression. So they realize, well, I think I'm, I'm being a, a burden to someone, so I'm just going to become more isolated and then more take care of my own things while their physical health then declines and they lack that sense of community. Now, this is not the way it is in many parts of the world. In fact, in many Asian countries, younger folks will actually bow in respect to the elderly when they are approached. And in many European countries, um, the elderly are treasured for their courage and their experience and actually sought after for advice. So, so if there's a big problem, they say, you, you, you want to find someone who's been down that road before, someone who's older, someone who's more experienced, and they're sought for advice. First century Greco-Roman world, to which Paul writes, uh, the bias was often twofold. The old would often despise the young and sometimes think there's nothing we can really glean from them. And the young then would often neglect the old, especially, as we're going to get into in just a moment, those who are widowed. Paul says to Timothy, older men and women should be treated with honor. Their advice should be welcomed. Their opinions seriously considered. The tone that younger folks use with older folks should be one of deference, not condescension, not dismissive. They are not to be rebuked harshly, Paul says. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, that older men or women, for that matter, cannot be corrected. We know better than that. We never outgrow the need for correction. In fact, we've already seen in this letter that Paul tells Timothy to charge certain people not to teach false doctrine. And these people were presumably older people. So it's not that, that if you're older, you know, you're, you're, you're beyond correction. That's not what Paul's saying. But he's saying if a younger person, a younger person goes and, and corrects an older person, it should be done with gentle persuasion, not a harsh rebuke, recognizing that person's status. The command by Paul simply means that when a pastor or even another brother in Christ who could be younger admonishes a, an older man, there's a certain way to do it, and it's a respectful way. Next, Paul says, younger men are to treat younger men as brothers. So people our own age, our peers, and even those who are younger than we are, we're still supposed to treat with respect as equals. Then Paul says, that an old, older women are to be cared for as mothers. So as you look around and you, you see, and, and we're, I'm really thankful in our congregation, we're, we're generationally diverse. I love this. We have lots of young families and, and lots of children and, and plenty of older folks and senior adults. And what Paul's saying is when we look at those older women in our church, we treat them with the same compassion and care and earnestness that we would even our own mothers. There are some great examples of this in history, don't we? I love the example of C.S. Lewis. While he was in his late teens, 
he became very good friends with uh, a man named Edward Patty Moore. They met in officers training at Keeble College in Oxford. They were roommates. They became very good friends. They actually both served together in World War I. And while in battle and things were looking bleak, C.S. Lewis and Patty said to one another, they said, hey, look, if things go really badly for me, will you take, out, take care of my mother? And then vice versa. If things don't work out for me, if I don't make it out of this, will you take care of my mother? So they made that arrangement with each other. Well, things, in fact, would go badly. Uh, C.S. Lewis's friend Patty Moore was killed in combat at the age of 20 in 1919. And C.S. Lewis actually stayed true to his word. He brought Patty's mom, Mrs. Moore, into his own home, treated her like his own mother for the next 30 years. 30 years he looked after his friend's mother. And she was notoriously hard to deal with. She was not an easy woman, so this was not an easy task. But he honored his word and he honored God as well. Now, the point, of course, is not that we have to pledge to take care of all of our friends' mothers when our friends die. Thankfully for me, because I have a couple of friends whose mothers would send me over the edge. If they moved in, I'd have to move out for sure. Um, that's not what Paul's saying, but he's saying in the spiritual family, we love and care for people in a way that sacrificially addresses their needs in a way that actually transcends gender and generation. Finally, Paul says, young women should be treated as sisters with all purity. This means that all men, not just ministers, should treat younger women with respect, the same sort of respect that they would their own sister, and do whatever possible to avoid even the hint of impropriety. Here's our first point this morning as we work our way through this passage. A distinguishing mark of those within God's family is a genuine affection and respect for those of different ages and genders. This is one of the marks of the Christian community, that they love one another despite the difference in age and gender. Now remember, Paul's writing to Timothy, who then will relay these instructions to the church at Ephesus. So these instructions are for believers. And we've already seen in this, we've seen in this letter already that one of the ways that the outside world will know that we're different, that we are in Christ, they'll, they'll honor God as He is, is as they see, see us loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another. These are believers, by the way, from various backgrounds and ages and ethnicities and socioeconomic status, and, and they've been united together as one family, sons and daughters of the living God. And Paul says, it's by the way those family members treat one another, we will give a watching world a picture of God's love. Now, one of the things this means for us is that younger folks, young adults, should take an interest in older adults. Younger adults should take an interest in And older adults then should engage and seek to get to know those who are even significantly younger. I thought it was interesting that Philip Ryken makes, makes a point on this, uh, which I, I found to be pretty uh, convicting. He says, it is the responsibility of older Christians to bridge the generation gap to younger Christians, not the other way around. And he, he extrapolates that by, by saying, look, when an adult is talking to a toddler, what does an adult do? He gets down on hands and knees, right? You don't say to the toddler, you've got to jump up and come get in my view so he can talk. 
When an older person speaks with someone who's younger, they, they come down, they want to speak to their level. They want to get into a place and even a position where mutual understanding can take place. So he says that, he says that in, in order to respect and engage teenagers, for example, older adults take the initi- initiative by entering their world, learning about their interests and even learning about their vocabulary. On the flip side, young adults would be foolish to conclude that because older folks don't roll up their jeans or shop at Tilly's, that they have nothing good to offer. You don't simply write off someone because they don't have the same style that I have. You know, they, that guy wears a pocket protector. I'm not going to listen to him. That's not the way that you actually engage. Recognizing there's value in wisdom of different ages. So Paul makes that point. And then after talking about relationships in general, he moves to a very unique situation that he's dealing with at the church at Ephesus. Look at verses 3 through 6. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a woman has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, it's an interesting phrase, we'll talk about just a second, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, there's a lot in there. We don't have time to really unpack all of it. But there is a a statement that I think is, is, it jumps out. It's a very odd statement. Paul says, honor the widows who are truly widows. Well, how can someone who's lost her husband, how can someone who's, who's lost her husband and provider not be truly a widow? How can they be an untrue widow? Well, some historical context really helps here. In the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, if a woman lost her husband to death, she was then to enter into the home of her, her son or grandson, and the monies that she had received for a dowry, that is the, the property or money that, her, that she had received from her husband at their marriage, those monies would go into kind of the management, um, if you will, of the son or grandson that she moved in with. Now, keep in mind, widows in the first century were, they weren't, sometimes they were very young. Uh, sometimes young ladies would get married at 14, 15, 16. They could be widowed as early as 19 or 20. So there were very young widows uh, at that time. And those widows had no social standing whatsoever. They were, they were marginalized. They were neglected. They had no voice in society at all. They were often even wrong financially. They were looked at as objects to be scammed and Uh, to take advantage of. And sometimes they were wronged in such a way that everything they had was taken, even their own children. One historian, William Ramsey, writes, given the narrow restrictions of ancient social life, it was not easy for widows to maintain their children after the earning member of the family had died and they stood in need of special consideration and help. And so Paul says, it's the job of the church, it's the responsibility of the believing community to actually provide for those who are true widows. And he goes on and clarifies what he's talking about. A true widow is one who has been left all alone. She has no one else. Those widows are to be supported by the church. In fact, James, the the brother of Jesus, would call this the greatest expression of true Christianity. Pure religion, he says, is to look after the widows and orphans and their distress. And, and I'm thankful at Capshaw we do this. And, I, and from what I've seen in four and a half months, 
I think we do it very well. We have deacons and small group leaders who, have, who look out for specific widows. We have a wonderful ministry led by Mary Rose Towery called Kindred Hearts that coordinates help and assistance for our widows and for other, others who are in need in this way. We have a benevolence fund that we use to help those who, who maybe hit a rough patch financially. So it's not just for widows. We are to care for those who are in need, particularly our widows. It's what we delight in doing, and it's certainly the responsibility of the church. But, Paul says, if a widow has surviving family, has family members, those family members should provide for their widowed mother. Apparently, what was happening in first century Ephesus, and we can, we can glean this from, from this letter and also from 2 Timothy, there were, there were widows whose respective sons and daughters were neglecting to take care of them. They were just leaving them to the church to take care of. They weren't providing for the needs of their own uh, family members. And the negligence of these surviving sons and daughters and grandsons and so on, it was putting a burden on the church to care for them. It was, it was causing distractions in the church, arguments in the church. It was putting an un- unnecessary weight on the church. And Paul is really bothered by this. He says in verse 4 again, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Here's our second point. Caring for our aging parents, uh, particularly those who are widowed, is one way that we honor them and please God. See, even though our position with, in, with God is secure in Christ by faith, and even though if, you've, if God's brought you to a place this morning where you've, you've put your faith in Jesus, you've turned from your own sin, you've repented of your own sin, and you're resting in Jesus and His cross work, your position with God is secure. There's nothing that can take away that position. There's nothing that can draw you away from God. There's nothing that you could even do that would cause God to say, you know what, I'm done loving this person. It's over. That's not the way that it works. But even though there's nothing we can do to cause God to abandon us, even though there's nothing we can do to cause God to love us less, it's still true that there are certain things that please God and there are other things that displease God. And I think this is sometimes lost in reform circles. Even though positionally we are safe and sound in God's covenantal affection, nothing we do will change that we can still grieve the Holy Spirit. We read that in the Scriptures. We can still please or displease God. And here we're told that one of the reasons we are to care for our aging parents is because this is pleasing to God. This pleases God when we look out for our aging parents, particularly those who are widowed. But what does it mean to honor our parents. Now you have to go all the way back, of course, to the Ten Commandments to consider this command in light of its cultural context. The fifth commandment reads, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that, you're, that the Lord your God has given you. Now Paul will actually repeat this command in Ephesians chapter 6. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? This comes up all the time, especially when I'm doing counseling for pre-marriage counseling, young couples. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean, then I'll tell you what it means. It doesn't mean that we are to imitate ungodly parents. 
So it doesn't mean you have to act like or, or do what your parents do if they're ungodly. That's not honoring father and mother. It doesn't mean that when we reach maturity and become adults, we're still under the control of our parents. So you, you, know, you graduate and you, you go off to college, you go off, you get a job, you're living your own place. And it doesn't mean that you're still under the control of your parents. That's not what it means to honor father and mother. Um, it certainly doesn't mean that once we're married, we're still under the oversight of our parent or parents. And honoring our father and mother doesn't even mean, and some of you are going to be really glad to hear this, it doesn't even mean, or it doesn't mean that our parents determine then where we spend the holidays. For some people, this is a big, big deal. This is a big deal. We're going to go, especially if your parents live uh, in the same town, right? You, well, why are you going there first? Why are you coming here first? Why are you spending seven hours there? You're only spending two hours here. To honor father and mother doesn't mean they're in control of your travel schedule, your holiday schedule. To honor has two, according to the ancient Near Eastern context, it has two dimensions. It has spiritual and material dimensions. Spiritually speaking, to honor is to esteem your parents highly, to give them weight, that's what the word honor means, by taking the heritage of truth that they invested in you, by taking that spiritual lineage, the, the knowledge of God that they've imparted to you, and passing that down generation to generation. This is the way that one way we honor our father and mother. We take what they have modeled and taught concerning the things of God, this, this faith deposit, and we pass it down to the next generation. This is one way that the kingdom of God is advanced as that heritage of truth is passed down. Now there's also... There's also a material uh, dimension to it. Because widows, as I mentioned, in the ancient Near East, the first century, um, they didn't have Social Security. There was no retirement plan. There was no Medicare, Medicaid, none of the government programs that we have. So when they got older and they lost their ability to provide for themselves, they needed help from the outside. They needed someone to come along and provide for them. And so they needed their kids to look after them. And the, the assumption was... They fed you, they housed you, they clothed you, they bathed you, they looked after you, they tended to you when you were little and you couldn't care for yourself. And now that you're older, it's your turn to return the favor. This is what Paul means by the phrase in verse 4, make some return. Recognize all that your parents have done for you. Understand and appreciate the sacrifices they've made. And when they get older, don't forget those things. But instead, make every effort to care for them. The Bible says it's our role to make sure that our parents are looked after. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that Social Security, government pensions, retirement, nursing homes, or whatever, hospice care, that any of those things are bad or should not be utilized. Only that children need to, to own it as a responsibility to care for their parents in their old age. This could mean a lot of things. It could mean shopping for your parents, arranging rides. Uh, if you have a widowed mother, paying her bills, helping her take care of her property, being a companion, just being someone there to listen to. You know, there's, a, there's an old Hebrew principle called sitting shiva, and it just means you go and you just sit. And you're there, and you're present emotionally and, and intellectually. You're there. So part of it just means being there, taking care of, it's a responsibility of adult children's children, but sometimes those children actually refuse, as we've seen in the first century, and we also see it today. When I was young in ministry, uh, this was the very first church I, I served. There was a widowed lady by the name of Leona. 
uh, Leona Biagi. She was in her early 80s at that time. So I don't know. I haven't heard that she passed away. Uh, but if she's, old, if she's uh, uh, alive now, she's got to be in her late 90s. Well, Leona was actually a sweet lady when you, when you got to know her. But man, she was rough on the outside. I mean, she, she had some really rough tendencies. In fact, she would actually heckle me when I would go up to preach, seriously. She would sit in the first row, and when I would go to take the platform, she would yell things out, you need to shave. I'm walking up to preach, you need to shave. One time I was getting ready to go, I was taking this, the platform to, to preach, and she said, that shirt looks awful on you. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this woman? I mean, she's there, she was there, she's yelling things out. She, she actually really liked me, but she, I was one of her favorite people, believe it or not. She just had this very strange way of showing it. Well, Leona had nothing. She had nothing. She lived in, in a little mobile home, and we as a church, we provided many things for her, rides, meals, warm clothes. She always wore a beanie, this lady. She always wore a New England Patriots beanie. She always sat right in the front row yelling at me. Um, but we took care of all these things for her. And then we found out that she had a daughter that lived less than two miles from her. And so we had this dilemma at the elder level. Okay, what do we do about Leona? We're not going to stop providing for her, but at the same time, how do we approach her daughter who is not providing any care at all? And so we finally, uh, we, we figured out a way to make contact with her daughter, Leona's daughter. We, we sat down with her, just a couple of us, and we said, you know, and she was a professing Christian. She went to another church. She, she called herself a believer. And so we sat down with Leona's daughter. We said, hey, your, your mom is actually in a really, really bad way. She said, I won't talk to my mom. I said, well, well, somebody needs to provide for your mother, to take care of your mother. She doesn't have anything. Now, we're glad to, to love on her and to support her, but as her daughter, you have a biblical obligation to actually provide for her needs. She said, I'm not talking to that woman. She didn't realize just how serious this was. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach, that is, the children of those who are widowed. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is some of the harshest language that the Apostle Paul uses in any of his writings. That person has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, why such strong language? Here's why, and this is our third point this morning. Our final point, those who refuse to provide for the needs of helpless family demonstrate no understanding of God's saving grace. Those who say, look, I'm not going to take care of my mom. I'm not going to look after my widowed mom. I want nothing to do with her. Those who refuse to provide for the needs of helpless family demonstrate no understanding of God's saving grace. Because look, at when you think about it, Providing care for the helpless is a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? God loved us and provided everything for us when we had nothing to offer in return. When we were utterly destitute, having nothing of any spiritual good in ourselves, God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us. Salvation, that is being reconciled to God, is the miraculous work of God alone. It's nothing we do. When we were dead, when we should have been written off, when we should have been cast away for good, when we should have been left for dead, God sent His Son to make us alive in Christ so that by our faith in Jesus, He would unite us into a family, adopt us as His very own, and 
place us right at the, at the table where he provides for us this incredible feast. The feast of riches in Jesus Christ. When we were helpless, when we were broken, when we had nothing at all that we should give to God, he brings us to a place of repentance and faith. It's all of him. It's all a free gift. When we should have, again, we should have been cast away. God sent his son so that we could be made right with him. So even though there's no gospel in this particular passage, the gospel is assumed. After all, this is one letter. We're looking at one part of one letter, but earlier in the letter, repeatedly, Paul talks about the beauty of the salvation of Jesus Christ. His kingship, his sacrifice, his incarnation, his death. Paul talks about these things, and and every aspect of the letter must be considered in the light of the whole. Paul's point is that no one who's ever been starving and helpless and been presented with such a feast, the glorious, full riches of God's salvation in Christ, would ever in the long run ignore a family member who is starving and helpless. Now, we might do it for a little while. And this is where we rest in God's grace. We all fail. We all fail to take care of our parents and love them the way that we should. We all look out for our own desires first. Praise God, He sees us through the lens of Jesus for those who put their faith in Christ. We will blow it. We will fail. We will make wrong decisions. We're fleshly creatures in these sin-cursed bodies. But God keeps pouring out His grace on us. See, I think often we confuse Jesus with Santa Claus. Now, I know, I know nobody thinks that Jesus wears the all-red suit with the white belt and, you know, has the big belly and says, ho, ho, ho. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, what we think is, you know, He sees us when we're sleeping, He knows when we're awake, and He's just waiting to move us from the naughty list to the nice list or vice versa. He's keeping track of everything we do, and if we're really, really good, He's going to move us. Jesus is going to move us from the naughty list to the nice list. But when we're bad, there we go again, relegated back to the naughty list. I think we look at Jesus sometimes, though, as though you know, we're, He just gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people. But that's actually not the beauty of the gospel at all. That's not the gospel. In fact, I would go so far as to say Jesus is the anti-Santa. And what I mean by that is... Jesus gives good things to very bad people. Jesus pours out His love and His affection and His mercy on people who don't deserve it. People who deserve death. People who deserve condemnation. People who deserve wrath. Jesus actually loves and cares for those people. He pours out His mercy on those who are not good. As I said at a memorial service I did last weekend, sometimes we think that heaven is for good people. But that's not it. Heaven is for very, very bad people. It's for people who recognize how bad they are and run in faith to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. God offers salvation for those who turn from their rebellion and believe on Jesus, that He died for them. He lived for them. He was raised for them. Because the reality is we're never going to be good enough. But ultimately, even though we will fail, even as it relates to the treatment of our own parents, even though we will will fail, we who have been forgiven by God in Christ, adopted into His family, given everything, though we don't deserve it, first of all, can only say thank you. 
And then we have a spirit-implanted desire to help others who are helpless. Certainly those in our own family who are without, who are starving, who are helpless, who, ha- who cannot provide for their own. And when we fail to do something even this basic, so rudimentary in the area of compassion, we demonstrate that we have no real comprehension of God's compassion, certainly no experience of His saving grace. Here's the way one linguist and scholar, William Mounts, talks about it. He says, for a person to claim to be a believer and yet not live up to even pagan standards of decency is virtually to deny the meaning of the Christian faith and live as an unbeliever. In other words, to put it as simply as I know how to phrase it, those who have been forgiven, forgive. Those who have been loved, love. Those who have been rescued from their own destitute state, who have been lavished upon them uh, affection and mercy and and every good thing, they then have a desire, they have a, a longing to actually care for and come to the aid of others. Those who have been rescued delight in rescuing, coming to the rescue of others. And even when we fail to love, Perfectly, even when we fail to forgive perfectly, even when we fail to care for others perfectly, we rest in God's grace, we repent, we come humbly before our God, and we say, God, forgive me. I am your child, I'm trusting in you, I'm believing in you, I'm resting only. Not even in the way I care for my parents, I'm resting only in the perfect obedience, the righteous record, the cross work and resurrection of your beloved Son. May God help us to rest in that this morning. Let's pray.